0: Uh, We're going to continue in our worship now with the reading of the word. Uh, Our one of our passages today is 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, let's begin in prayer as we get started. And Jesus, you are present with your people in uh, the declaration and preaching of your word and the gathering of worship. Uh, thank you for the unity of the saints through the ages that we can be together as one uh, united by Jesus and through the Spirit, and would you lead us as we learn about your scriptures, your uh, revealed word, and would you build in us faith, would you build in us uh, a community of truth-seeking and truth-telling, and please help me now to, uh, uh, to lead us in that direction well. I need your help, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So, Pastor Ben ended our series through the Gospel of Mark last week. This week will be a standalone message, and then next week we'll be getting into the Advent season. So, through the Gospel of Mark, right, we were challenged with the hard questions that Jesus asks. Things like, who do you say that Jesus is? Will we run away in fear like so many of the disciples, or will we follow him to the cross? So this week, I want to, I want to turn the tables a little bit, right? Jesus asks us hard questions and I want to ask and wonder, can we ask Jesus the hard questions, right? And is, is the church even a safe place to ask questions? I don't know. Is it a safe place to wrestle with God, wrestle with the hard questions of our generation? Is it a safe place to have doubts, right? Right? Is it a safe place to be as confused as the disciples were in the Gospel of Mark? uh, Truthfully, I, I really hope it is. I really hope that we can be a community of honesty and safety where we can be real and we can truly embrace the messiness of life together and the messiness of faith, of being on that journey, trying to follow Jesus even when we don't always understand him or what he's doing in our life. Now, in that process one of the cool things about preaching through books of the bible and that's why I love that we do that here at Central Bible Church is that it forces you to deal with sometimes more challenging things, right? You don't get to just cherry pick your favorite verses and and always preach on the Caleb power verse, right? Sometimes you have to kind of you got to get into deep waters and you got to wrestle through things and so that's where our text brings us this week to the end of the Gospel of Mark, right? And it's honestly going to bring up questions about the textual history of the Bible, and it's going to challenge us to really ask, why do we trust the Bible? And some of the things we talk about might even make us feel a little uncomfortable, okay? But that's okay. You can be uncomfortable in church. So let me show you what I mean. Turn your Bibles to Mark 16, okay? Okay? And we're going to read, don't pull up the next note yet, I'll read the text and then up on the screen will be the footnote. Um, I'm reading out of the ESV and we'll start in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, but my Bible has a little footnote here or a little brackets before verse 9. It says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, 9 through 20, okay? And then this whole passage is in double brackets in my Bible. They will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord working with them, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by, the, by accompanying signs. Now pull up the, the footnote. so here's the footnote in my Bible. Um, It says this, it says, some manuscripts end the book with 16.8, right? Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include, after verse 8, the following, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. After this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. These manuscripts then continue with verses 9 through 20. Well, what is it? Right? <laughs> I think you got like up there, like three different choices. So, should these verses be in there or shouldn't they? Right? Is this section of Mark's gospel a part of God's true word? Is it inspired? And if it's not, and if it's not a part of God's word, why is it in our English Bibles? Right? And if if this mistake is included, what other mistakes are there? Or if it is God's word, then why was it lost in so many early manuscripts? And if it was lost, what other portions of God's word was lost? Or worse yet, purposely removed? Right? These are some of the questions I want to try to answer for us this morning. Okay? But we're gonna take the long scenic route around. Okay? So hold on tight. Put your thinking caps on. This is going to be half-sermon, half-seminary class, okay? So I hope you're cool with that. Um, could someone bring me a cup of water? I used up my, my short supply this morning. Um, thank you, Chris. So first I'll start with my story, just a little bit. I grew up in a context on the island of Hawaii with a lot of conspiracy theories running around. And a lot of of just real distrust and and even hatred towards anything established, anything um, any kind of religious authority. Thank you. and I, I kind of got the impression that the Bible was something like the the Wizard of Oz. Did you guys ever watch The Wizard of Oz right so Right? You, you look up there, this is kind of a good illustration, right? So if you remember the scene where they go into the and actually see the wizard, right, and there's, there's these curtains up there, and there's this face projected on the, up on the, the screen, right, and there's like clouds and smoke and lights and all that, and it's like, here's the glorious, wonderful Oz. Shh, don't pay attention to the guy behind the curtain pulling the levers, right? But just look at the big light, look at the smoke and the, the loud, ominous voice, Ignore the guy pulling the levers. And that was really how I thought of the Bible. And that's how everyone around me thought of the Bible. That it it was just kind of projected up there for the the faithful to believe in. But if you really looked around carefully, if you really asked the hard questions, if you peeked behind the curtain, well, you'd know that it it was made up. You'd know that it was corrupted or some conspiracy. That was the impression that I had growing up. And then I I met Jesus. I had a powerful experience of the risen Christ, and I began to follow him. All my intellectual questions weren't answered, but I was following Jesus and trusting him. And so I would bring those questions to church, and honestly, in, in all the good well-meaningness of, of people at my church, they, they just didn't really have good answers. Sometimes they actually had kind of pat answers for, for my tough questions. Um, but that was okay. I was... I was experiencing Jesus in radical ways. He was transforming my life. And so I just said, you know, I got to figure these questions out. And so I decided to go to the place that you go if you want to learn the Bible. Where's that, right? I went to Multnomah, um, and, so I, and I studied Greek and Hebrew, and I said, I want to be able to read the original text, I want to wrestle with it, I want to study textual criticism, right? That science of studying the original manuscripts and comparing them and, and trying to understand what was that original text that was written. So I wrestled through that, and honestly, going through that, asking those hard questions, looking behind the curtain, my confidence in God's Word only increased, Right? Now, it's not to say I have it all figured out, or every difficulty is, is somehow perfectly solved this side of heaven for me, but the more I searched, the more I dug, the more I became sure and confident in the trustfulness of this book here. So, that's my story. Now, here's that long, scenic path I want to take us on. We're going to talk about two things. First, the nature of God's Word. And, and that's going to be kind of more the, the sermon piece. That's what has the church believed for centuries, for even millennia, about the revealed Word of God? Okay? And the second piece, then, is the transmission of God's Word. How has that Word, then, been delivered to us? Okay? So first, the nature of God's Word. And we'll pull up the, the first one. I got a lot of help from John Frame's systematic theology going through this. So first, God's word is inspired. And the verse there is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, there, there's a certain mystery to this, isn't there? Right, Inspiration teaches that... that there was a divine act in creating an identity between the very divine voice, the very word of God, and human words. Right, the very words and authority of God were spoken through human personalities in the midst of in a social and a cultural context of those human authors. Okay, now theologians like to use big words, right? All, Just complicated words. It makes them feel smart. Um, So one that gets used with inspiration is plenary. It just means all, right? It's all inspired, right? You can't pick and choose your favorite verses and the ones that you ignore. I like it when Jesus said, "Become like a little child." I don't like it when Jesus said, "Take up your cross," right? So to be plenary, uh, to have plenary inspiration, just means it's all inspired. You got to take it all or reject it all. Um, and we use the word verbal inspiration just to say that it's the words that are inspired and not the ideas, right? Actual words breathed out by God, okay? Second one is inerrant. God's word is inerrant. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Inerrancy simply means freedom from error or untruth. Or we might use the word infallible, which actually means incapable of erring, right? God cannot lie. God does not make mistakes, and so his revealed word does not make mistakes. So this is probably one of the most, in the modern day, debated declarations that we will make this morning about the Bible, So it's important, I'm going to dig a little deeper. It's important to see the difference between truth and precision. Okay, follow me here. These are different things. In science, you can have a measurement, right, that is, it varies by .0003 centimeters, okay, in science. And we would call that an error, as in margin of error. What's your margin of error? Oh, 0.00 whatever, maybe 3 centimeters. In science, that would be an error. If, on the other hand, I asked you how old you were, right, you wouldn't give your age down to the nanosecond. That would be silly. In fact, by the time you said your age, it would be wrong already, right? So, we speak the truth when we share our age Rounded down to the nearest year. How accurate is that? You're not telling the truth when you tell someone, oh, I am, right, this old. Sometimes we don't tell the truth when we tell people how old we are. That's a different discussion, though. But in general, we round down to the nearest year and we're telling the truth. So the Bible is ordinary language, not scientific language. And so inerrancy doesn't insert necessarily precision, but inserts, it asserts that there is truth in God's Word. Now, some of you, if you've studied, wrestled through maybe what we call Bible difficulties, right? Or you might find, or people would, will claim to say, hey, there's apparent errors here, or there's possible contradictions and imprecision, right? Do those things contradict inerrancy? Those difficulties, those challenges, those things that we might even not know how to harmonize when we're honest. Does that contradict inerrancy? Well, let me ask you this. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. Are there any other doctrines in the Bible that don't make entire sense or have paradox and challenge? How about the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or man's free will? You got that one figured out to a T? (laughs) right or how about the trinity three and one right it's mystery it's paradox it's it's a bible difficulty we wrestle with it we've wrestled it for centuries or how about the question of a good god of how a good god can still allow evil in the world right we wrestle with these things we don't have pat answers for almost anything in here (laughs) and that's okay so one aspect of the Christian faith, and this is, I believe, an essential aspect, is that we believe God's word, even when we do not entirely understand it. Okay, we will not solve all the perceived Bible difficulties in this life, and when we're just relying to ourselves, if we say that we will. So here's a quote, Blaise Pascal. He says. In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. Right? We cannot demand that all our problems of belief are solved before we receive Christ and his scriptures that testify about him. You just can't. Then it wouldn't be faith, right? Faith is the assurance of things that we don't see, Right? It wouldn't be faith, it'd be sight, or it would be human reason, not faith. So the process of faith is, is, is walking before God in humility, saying, I don't understand it all. Or, we actually, I love that prayer of, of uh, St. Anselm. Anselm says, he says, uh, that his posture of faith that, w- that we can all <laughs> appreciate and share is faith seeking understanding right? And that's the Christian posture. We're comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. You can say that to your friend who asks you a hard question about your faith. Say, That's a good question. I don't know. I don't have the perfect answer, but I'm trying to understand. And so we can pursue truth together, right? We can answer those questions together. We can start with faith and say, I have faith and I'm seeking understanding, though I don't have all the answers yet. Okay, the next one is that the Word of God is clear. That was loud and clear. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 and 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off, but the Word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Another. For your, you theological students, this might be on a test sometime. The, the big word for clarity is perspicuity. Just try to say that three times fast. Perspicuity. This just means it's clear, right? The Bible is not just for the learned and educated or for the religious authorities. And there's also, it's not a Gnostic secret text that you have to have some initiated secret knowledge to somehow understand. Right? There's no secret handshakes involved. Right? The message of salvation can be understood by normal people in nor- with, through normal means. And it's not always clear enough right, to answer every metaphysical question you might have about ultimate reality. It's not. But it is clear enough for us to carry out our present responsibilities before God. It's clear enough for us to know how to walk in the light that God has given and to know what he desires of us. We can know the practical things like how to be faithful to our spouses, how to to get up in the morning and work hard, how to forgive and love our neighbor. Those things are very, very clear. Next, the word of God is necessary. There's just just three more including this. Matthew 4.4, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus right, quotes Deuteronomy as, as he's being tempted by the devil. God's word is necessary. We need it. In fact, it's necessary and foundational for salvation. Right? Our relationship with God is a covenantal relationship founded on verbal proclamations. God has spoken his covenant love to us. And we have responded, right? right? Like Romans 10 says, we've called on the name of the Lord. We have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. There's a verbal covenant that's been made. Without God's word, there is no covenant and there is no salvation. And like this verse says, you know what? Our, our faith, it shrivels up and dies without a constant and a consistent feasting on God's word. Don't try to be a Christian without loving and reading your Bible. It is necessary. Next, the church has said for millennia that the Bible is comprehensive. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The scriptures address every human activity with the authority that only God has the right to do. It applies to all situations of our experiences and its applications have implications in every area of life. We can't live in a sacred, secular divide. We, We can't have church on Sunday and a different lifestyle and worldview on Monday. God's word speaks comprehensively to all of life. And then finally, the word of God is sufficient. In Mark 7, 6 through 7, And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is the great reformation declaration of sola scriptura. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for every aspect of human life. And this is in contrast to the Roman Catholic view which says that the Bible is not enough. We need church tradition and church authority to stand alongside and to interpret the Bible for us. No, Sola Scriptura says it's sufficient. It's also in contrast to maybe more fringe elements in a Pentecostal tradition who would put private revelations from the Spirit on equal footing as the Scriptures. Solo Scripture teaches us that the Bible alone is sufficient. We don't need private revelations, or we can't have those put at the level of Scripture, and we cannot put church authority at the level of Scripture. Okay, so those are foundational. The nature of God's Word. Now, right, so God spoke. He's revealed His Word. How does that get to us today? Okay, that's the study of the transmission of God's word. Now, if you remember from Second Peter, um, and I want you to, to see it. I don't have on the, on the screen, but we can turn there. When we read this, in Second Peter, there are three aspects that we see in God's revelation. And you can look at it, and I'll just kind of talk through the text. There is the divine voice God speaks from heaven to the disciples when they are on that Mount of Transfiguration. Right, they're with Jesus, and God speaks and says, "This is my beloved Son, right, with whom I am well pleased." So the first aspect of God's revelation is that divine voice, that authoritative voice speaking. The second, then, we see in this in this text are the eyewitnesses, the apostles or in the Old Testament, the prophets, who heard that divine voice, who received that divine voice, they are then entrusted as messengers with the very authority of the divine voice. And so there's no loss of authority between the revelation directly from God and then the prophets and apostles that he commissions. And then finally in this scripture, scripture it speaks about right the, uh, every prophecy of scripture doesn't come from someone's own interpretation, right? That the prophecy of Scripture is then the written accounts, the written word from those prophets and apostles. And it says here that that is also equally authoritative, that it is, that it is sure. And so, that's the first aspect of transmission. You can see here, divine voice, prophets and apostles, the written word. All of it fully authoritative. No loss of any authority as that goes down. Okay? But that is only the beginning of transmission. Right? The written word passes through a number of processes before it reaches our ears, our eyes, and our hearts. So, let's look at a couple of those steps, a few of them. We'll walk through them quickly. There are copies. Those original uh, autographs, written by the apostles in the, in the New Testament, were copied and passed on to the churches. Then we have the science of textual criticism. As we then gather these different manuscripts, and even as the early church gathered different manuscripts, they, and, and they compare them, they seek to reconstruct what those original autographs and that original text was. Then we have translations and editions. If you have an, you're reading an English Bible, you are reading a translation. Right? The Great Commission, the gospel, was to go to the nations. The, the act of translation is a necessary part of understanding God's word. There's additions, too. Even if you're reading Greek, you're reading an edition that compiles different Greek manuscripts into an edition of the text. And then we have teaching and preaching. Right? You're learning from someone speaking to you of God's word. We have sacraments and ordinances, Right? That there's, there's a way that God speaks to us through communion, through baptism. There's confessions, creeds, and traditions that are passed on. There's, and then finally, there's human reception, and there's interpretation and understanding. Right? We, we then take God's word and try to understand it for ourselves. We receive it. So the first aspects, right? the divine voice, the prophets and apostles, and, this, and their inspired text... That's infallible, right? But as we look through this list, right, this process is fallible. These are human means that, that happen as we, as just people, try to seek to understand, receive, and pass on God's word, right? None of this can claim ultimate authority, ultimate power, and the ultimate presence of God, even though each of those things convey those truths in God's Word. There's a very real human element to this, isn't there? So then there's the, there's, here's the big question, and here's some of that, that uncomfortableness that we feel, right? Should the human elements here cause us to question the inspiration of Scripture? I'd answer no. No. But it forces us to clarify what we mean when we say that the scriptures are inspired. Okay, we had to clarify it. So, one more clarification related to it. The The consensus among evangelical theologians is that inspiration is in the autographic text of the biblical books, that's what inspired, not just the autograph. Not just the exact original that was handwritten by Paul or Peter. But if that exact original was copied without any errors or changes introduced, as in like a photocopy or as in a faithful hand copy, that, is, that text still contains the autographic text and thus is without error. It is inerrant. Okay? Okay? That is the autographic text. But copying, right, as you see here, is a fallible process. And changes can be introduced into that process. So that's a reality of history. So then the next question, and here's the, we wrestle through it. How much of that inspired autographic text has been transmitted to us today? So you have a Bible in your hands. How much of that inspired, inerrant text has been passed on and transmitted to us today? Right? Important question. So we know we don't have the originals, but we do know that the autographic text has been transmitted, transmitted through the copies and editions through the centuries down to our time. That, that transmission has been imperfect in places, but through the the science of textual criticism, it's possible to determine where those imperfections are likely to be and where we have no evidence that there's been corruptions or changes, we can have absolute confidence that the present text we have is the autographic text. So where there's no evidence of changes, we can be sure that we have that autographic text and thus that we have the inerrant word of God. And just like, and you see it all over the New Testament, I don't know if you ever thought of this, what? Did did the New Testament authors, did they quote the Old Testament much? All the time. Do they quote it authoritatively? Absolutely. Jesus and the apostles quote it as the very authority of God. Did they have the original autographic text? They had copies from manuscripts, or actually is most of the case, they had a translation called the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And just like the New Testament authors quote them with authority and confidence, we can, where there's no evidence of changes, quote and build our lives upon the Bibles that we have today. Okay, we're going to keep digging deeper. Okay. Okay. So how sure are we that we have the original? If we can say it is an error and it's authoritative and it's true when there's no errors, how sure are we that we have that original? So that brings up the issue of modern skeptics and what they bring up. So, if you, um, so here's Bart Ehrman uh, in Misquoting Jesus. Usually books on textual criticism are for Bible nerds and they don't sell many copies. If you market it really well, and sound really controversial, you can become a bestseller. And that's what our friend Bart Ehrman has done. I'm not saying he's not qualified to talk about the subject. I'm just saying it's a marketing genius what he's done with his book. So here's a quote from Miss Jesus. Scholars differ significantly in their estimates. Some say there are 200,000 variants known. Some say, some say 300,000. Some say 400,000 or more talking about variance in the, the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. We do not know for sure because despite impressive developments in computer technology, no one has yet been able to count them all. Perhaps, as I indicated earlier, it is best simply to leave the matter in comparative terms. Okay, you ready for the punchline? There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Let's take a drink of water. Let that sink in. that says Bar Ehrman. Okay, I've, we're going to have a book in the back uh, after the service. We have like, I think, five or six copies by Craig Blomberg. Can We Still Believe the Bible? An Evangelical Engagement with Contemporary Questions. So he engages with uh, Ehrman a lot in this book, and it, it's great, it's practical, it's technical in the footnotes, but really readable in the text. So you can dig as deep as you want. Here's Blomberg's response to that. He says, Ehrman himself quotes that 5,700 manuscripts exist from the centuries before the printing press was invented. He acknowledges that we have about 10,000 manuscripts of the Latin translation of the New Testament, along with manuscripts in other ancient languages, along with all the quotations of Scripture passages in the Church Fathers, right? So you can can reconstruct just about the entire New Testament, minus like a handful of verses just from the Church Fathers, Right? So those 400,000 variants are spread across more than 25,000 manuscripts in Greek or other ancient languages. This is an average of only 16 variants per manuscript, and only 8th estimate of 200,000 variants is more is the more accurate one. Nor are the variants spread evenly across a given text. Instead, they tend to cluster in places where some kind of ambiguity has stimulated them. Paul Wigner estimates that only 6% of the New Testament and 10% of the Old Testament contain the vast majority of these clusters. Wow. A little perspective kind of changes, uh, changes our idea about things. So, so his, in, in those variants, what kind of variants are there, right? What are they like? Well, primarily, they are copyist typos. Things that happen to us today, even with our fancy technology and our spell checks. Things like misspellings, duplicating or omitting a letter, word, or line, or placing punctuation or spaces in differing places. The vast, vast majority are simple typos that you look at and you obviously know oh, he spe- spelled that word with an extra beta or whatever, right? An extra letter. Oh, okay. I know what the problem was. Occasionally, a scribe sought to harmonize a verse with other verses or make an obscure word or phrase easier to understand, right? Now the vast majority of these variants are interesting only to experts and nerds that that's their job. They really are entirely uninteresting and with no conspiracy or best-selling news about them, right? In fact, less than 3% of the variants are significant enough to be included in the critical editions of the New Testament. These are the New Testaments that translators of the Bible use. And they have the Greek text and then the apparatus which describes, oh, these are the manuscripts that support different readings. Okay? Only 3% of those variations are worth even putting it into the critical text for scholars. And only about one-tenth of one percent are interesting enough to put in your footnotes in your Bible. Right? Because they just have absolutely no meaning or difference. There's just nothing to write a best-selling book about them. Um, So, next quote from Craig Blomberg. He says, It cannot be emphasized enough that no orthodox doctrine or ethical practice of Christianity depends solely on any disputed wording. There are always undisputed passages one can consult that teach the same truths. So not only is it that only one-tenth of one percent are worth even putting in our footnotes, those that are included, they don't change any ethical or doctrinal teaching, right? And if you have NIV or ESV or whatever translation, you know what? There's no conspiracy behind it, right? Those variants are in your footnotes. In the NIV, there's about 130 of them, Right? And, and you can read through and you just look down at the, the small uh, type in your Bible and they'll talk about them. And they'll include the best option in the text and then they'll include a variant option in the footnote. And like a good Bible reader, you can think through, oh, okay, would that make any difference or or not? or And, and think through it. Now, out of all those 130 footnotes, only two of them, include more than um, two verses. And it's John 8, which is the story of the, the woman caught in adultery, and our passage that we're looking at today, Mark 16. There's only two of them, and those are them. And as we'll, we'll see in just, just a couple minutes, I'll get there. Uh, it's really actually not disputed at all whether or not they should be in there. So, just, I know I'm covering a lot. This is the seminary course and, uh, uh, portion of the message. Last few couple pieces. So pull up the, the next one. Um, that The biblical documents, these are just general ideas that we can have confidence in. The biblical documents are far better preserved and are found in exponentially greater numbers than any other ancient document. When when we compare different ancient documents, the Bible is far better preserved, and there are so many, (laughs) 25,000 manuscripts. The earliest copies that we have are closer to the time of the original writings than any other ancient document. And they date back to a period when the eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection were still alive. So that eyewitnesses could check them and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. Every so-called lost gospel, you may have heard about these, including the Gospel of Thomas, have been proven forgeries written two to three hundred years after the original Gospels were penned. And the vast majority of the New Testament books that we have today were accepted by the church as early as A.D. 170, right? Long before the conversion of Constantine in 312, when he would have somehow Orchestrated politically to choose which books were in and which ones were were out. No, the church had accepted the biblical books 100 or 200 years before that. Additionally, now this this should uh, have a uh, should say a lot, right? Additionally, there are no disagreements anywhere in the church today about which New Testament books represent the testimony of the apostles and the original eyewitnesses to Christ. This is not one of the debatable matters. Right? Christians, we can disagree about plenty of stuff. Right? We don't disagree about this. It's just clear. We know which books are in the New Testament and that they are authoritative from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And then finally, as more advances are made in the study of ancient manuscripts, the certainty that we have of the original wording of the autographic text only increases. We learn more and more every year. I mean, I even just I think Multnomah a couple years back, they were able to, to do some uh, manuscript work uh, with Doctor Kutz and his students, and like those are new discoveries that you can actually advance in our uh, in the confidence that we have in uh, the text. So, in conclusion, we can agree with John Frame when he says. This, because of God's singular care and providence over the process of transmission, we now have in Scripture all the personal words that God intends to say to us today. Okay? Now let's land the ship back at Mark 16. Okay? So, that's the question I began with. Is this section in Mark's gospel a part of God's word? Right? And should that question... And the fact that there is a question cause us to distrust our Bibles. And I would say no. First, because there, there actually isn't much dispute or argument over it. The consensus among scholars is that the original text of Mark 9 ends at verse 8. Right? And it's clear from internal evidence when you read the grammar of the words used in this long ending... And it's clear from external manuscript evidence that this was added by some other author to fix what he thought was either, oh, the ending got lost, or this is just a really unsatisfying ending, and I, I like happy endings, and so we're going to have to wrap it up nicely. And this very well-meaning person or group of people then picked from different gospel stories through the resurrection accounts and even the book of Acts— and created an orthodox ending for the, the book. So, it's actually not disputed. We know that it shouldn't be included in the Gospel of Mark. Right? There's just no, there's no debate about it. It shouldn't be there. At least it's not original, and thus not inerrant and authoritative. Right? But is it heretical? Is it harmful? Well, depends if you're dancing with snakes on Sunday morning. Right, so if you're dancing with snakes, you're taking this verse too far, right? But for the most part, you know what? It's not heretical. It's not. It's not a big problem that it's there, but it's not original. So now I know that may bother you, right? It, it bothers me a little bit because it's in. It's in our English Bible, right? But we just look at the footnotes, and we see that the translators are trying to tell us. Hey, you know what? The evidence points towards it not being in the original, right? So then, the question I have as I wrestle with it. I know we're a lot of questions this morning. Is well, why would it be in there, right? Can't they just decide it is or it isn't, right? So why is it in there? So at least two reasons. One reason is it's good. Tra- it's a good thing in translating the Bible to be as transparent as possible. Right, where there's meaningful textual variants, where there's differences. I think it's a good thing that our translators are absolutely transparent, right? There's nothing to hide. It's just like, okay, we have some manuscripts that have this. Here we go. Include it. So, I think that's one piece. And the other piece is just this. Bible translators tend to be very conservative when it comes to leaving out portions of the English Bible that people have gotten used to reading, right? And especially because we have a rich English heritage in a Bible translation that originates in the 1611 King James Version, right? Okay. Some are just, are so, right, emotionally charged over this issue that it's like everything to them. And it's the KJV only, and it's like, you're going to hell if you don't read the KJV. And there is that, that world. And, and so in, in love to the whole body of Christ, these English translators say, you know what? We're going to keep it in there. We're going to tell our readers that we don't think it's original, but for the sake of, of peace and harmony, um, we're going we're to keep it in there. Okay? So, again, in, in closing, I want to I encourage you, if you're wrestling with these questions, this is a safe place to wrestle through them, to ask these questions. You can pick up this copy. We're selling it for five bucks less than Amazon, so twelve bucks a copy. Um, Now let's end with one final pastoral question: Why did God inspire inerrant scriptures? Right, we talked about right the divine voice, the prophets and apostles, and then that inspired text. Why would He inspire it and then hand it over to us grubby humans? right, to then go through this fallible process of transmission and interpretation. Why, why would God do that? Don't we, we somehow want to imagine like, like a text falling from heaven that we can inherit? and Oh, there it is. Or like some cultic groups that just say, well, uh, this prophet had a dream and an angel appeared to them and th- there they were. Here's the secret original writings and, and, and then we can somehow perfectly trust them. That's kind of what we want, isn't it? In fact, we like that long ending in Mark better. And they ran away in fear. Ah, I don't like that ending. I like, and they like brought the gospel to the world, and they conquered it, and they, and the people, snakes bit them, and they were healed, and and oh, signs and wonders, and it's wonderful. We don't like the fear, and we don't like difficulties and wrestlings and hard questions and and doubt and ambiguity and mystery, right? We. We want it cut and dry. So, why would God hand this process over to us grubby humans uh, to get our hands on it and to wrestle through it? You know what? I, I, I think there could be lots of answers. Like, I don't know all the answers, but I think one good one and an important one is that God wants us to receive his word in a communal way. Right? As a community. If he gave perfect copies the perfect translators so that each of us could then have a perfect understanding of the Scriptures, we could just be like, okay, I'm going to go to the bookstore, buy my perfect, perfect translation, and with my, my perfect kind of download from God, go into my closet and have my relationship with God without any help from the body of Christ, without any help from teachers, without any help from the rich tradition and legacy of the, of the creeds and confessions of the, of the church. Right? I wouldn't need the body. I wouldn't need community. I could just I just got it download from God. No, but instead, he has created a community, he has created a church. Jesus said that, didn't he? I mean, he said he was going to entrust his word to his disciples. And that then they can hand it on to us. And so there's been this baton, right? This legacy of God's word, of his revelation that has been handed down through the generations. And rather than, than some people who say it's like, oh, it's like a, a game of telephone, right? It gets worse and worse the farther you get from the originals. No, no, it actually gets better. We're discovering more and more early manuscripts. It's getting clearer and clearer. But we do it in community. We need each other. We need, we need those that have translated the Bible. We need those that have studied the manuscripts. We need the copyists from the third century, right? This is all a part of God's community. And we need to wrestle through these things together so let's take that precious treasure that we have that's been preserved through us through the centuries and then it's been given to us now we get to run the race in our generation right standing against those things that challenge god's word in our generation and then taking that baton and passing it on to the next generation so let's do it together let's be a, a welcoming community for people that are wrestling and and let's let's do it in love pray with me Thank you, Jesus, that you have entrusted to us your word. Uh, It is is a weighty thing. Would you help us uh, to to pray in honesty, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you you help us to uh, be patient with the doubting and the fearful? Would you help us, uh, especially those who are doubting, to have a confidence that that they can walk out this door with a deeper resolve uh, to to stand on and rely and build uh, their lives around your revelation. Uh, God, build us up as a community. Thank you for all the gifts of the body that we get to serve together and learn from one another as we speak God's truth in love together. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.